On FCC Today, the podcast for December 3, 2021, an FCC Extra featuring the questioning of FCC Commissioner nominee Gigi Sohn at the Senate Commerce Committee on December 1, 2021. FCC Extra. First, we hear from Senator Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, asking about the issues with the FCC's broadband maps. Ms. Sohn, this map issue is is really going to be your jurisdiction. Um, We've got $48.2 billion. um, Very much needed. Folks uh, out in the states, particularly in the the broad heartland of America, very excited about this. Um, And we've talked about speed um, and, and getting accurate results quickly uh, for a long time. When we needed a vaccine, uh, our military helped us come up with uh, Operation Warp Speed. What ideas do you have about a warp speed uh, way to, to uh, get accurate maps? Thank you, Senator Wicker. I think one of the things that Chairwoman Rosa Werthel is definitely going to be working on, and if I'm confirmed, I would like to work on with her, is getting everybody around the country, the states, a lot of states have maps already, and they're, and they're quite accurate. So getting the states, uh, getting localities, basically crowdsourcing where broadband is and isn't. So that's really kind of the third step. So the first step is the fabric, which Chairwoman Rosa Worsell has now secured. Uh, the second is getting the information from the broadband providers. And the third is the crowdsourcing. Can you give us an idea about how long you think that's going to take till we can start uh, bringing connectivity with this $48.2 billion and other money? Yeah, um, Senator, I'm not sure, just because I'm not uh, privy to all the information that the FCC has now. So I don't think I could give you a timeline. I will just say, as, as a person who has said over and over again, you can't make good policy without good maps, if I'm confirmed, that would be one of the things I would dedicate myself to, and I would hope that the chairwoman would task me uh, with working on those maps. Okay. Let me uh, switch to um, uh, price regulation. Uh, and you mentioned um, in your verbal testimony and, and in your written testimony, uh, competition. Markets work best when there's vigorous competition. Um, uh, policies that promote competition are always superior to heavy-handed behavioral or price regulation. As I'm sure you are aware, that's been one of my concerns uh, with the so-called net neutrality. I don't know of anybody um, on this committee or within the sound of my voice, really, that, that wants blocking and throttling. Um, we want, I, I want a light-touch regulation, the kind of regulation that gave the United States a leg up during the, the COVID-19 pandemic when our European friends had shutdowns and slowdowns, and, and we really had no problem in that regard, even though there was, uh, there was a quantum leap in Internet usage and, and uh, Zoom calls and things like that. We had the investment in my view, because of, uh, of the uh, light touch. Um, and, and I am, I've been talking about this for a long time, and I'm, I'm a big boy, and uh, I've been around the block, and so have you, <laughs> Ms. Sohn, but you said that I had spread net neutrality 
disinfo uh, uh, in in saying just what I said. So uh, how how was I spreading um, net neutrality disinfo? So uh, call that remark. Yeah. I, well, it was a tweet, and it was during the consideration of the Save the Internet Act. And I believe what I was referring to was the question about whether broadband investment uh, went down uh, during the time where there was uh, Title II net neutrality and whether it went up uh, after the repeal. That's what I was referring to. Uh, I do disagree. I actually think that Title II, and actually the evidence shows that Title II and net neutrality had no impact on investment. Uh, and if you look at SEC filings and even the words of the broadband providers themselves, they, will, they have actually said that Title II really had no impact on investment. But I agree with you generally that light touch is better. But what I'm concerned about now and with the repeal in 2017 of the net neutrality rules and the reclassification of broadband is that we have no touch. And the net neutrality debate, which I've been doing now for 20 years, really is more about whether there's going to be oversight. Chairwoman Rosenworcel said this two weeks ago. It's really much broader than the no blocking and the throttling. It's about whether broadband, which we all agree is an essential service, should have some government oversight. And right now it doesn't have any. What went wrong during the four years of Chairman Pai under the repeal of the, it, it basically the Title II part? of uh, net neutrality. Yes. So what went wrong wasn't so much, again, about the blocking and the throttling, although there was one study from Northeastern University that showed that mobile providers at all times of day were blocking and throttling traffic, or throttling traffic, excuse me, uh, regardless of the reason. But for the most part, that wasn't the problem. The problem, again, was lack of oversight. So if, uh, if you'll uh, indulge me, I'd like to give just two examples. The first was in 2018 when firefighters were fighting then the largest fire in California, the Mendocino Complex fire. And their broadband provider was throttling back their broadband. There was no place the firefighters could go to get relief. They actually were arguing with them for seven months until finally uh, they, they struck a deal to pay, I think it was double the money. So there was no, they had no recourse, right? They couldn't go to the FCC because the FCC didn't have authority. The FTC didn't have authority either. So it was more a matter of who's going to protect competition, who's going to protect public safety. Can you and I agree that that, that particular example could be addressed without um, Title II rate regulation authority. Can we agree to that? Without rate regulation? Absolutely, okay. yes. Okay, and, and, and I know I've gone beyond, as the chair did in her questioning, <laughs> but I'll, I'll get back um, uh, uh, at another time. Thank you, Madam Chair. Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat from Connecticut. Ms. Sohn, I appreciated your comments about protecting competition and localism in journalism. Uh, I agreed with you on the Sinclair Tribune merger, fortunately, eventually, Chairman Pai agreed with us, uh, as did other news outlets, including many of the conservative media. There should be nothing partisan about protecting localism and competition in journalism. And I appreciated your comments about um, that goal uh, being 
of heightened importance, I think, in the pandemic particularly so. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how specifically you would protect and enhance local journalism? Uh, the chair, Senator Cantwell, is leading a bill, the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. I'm a strong supporter of it. One example, just one example of what we could do. Maybe you have some thoughts. Thank you, Senator. I want to say first that, you know, local broadcasting really is vital to the lifeblood of every community. I mean, they alone among communications platforms are dedicating, dedicated to serving local communities with emergency alerts, with local news, with local journalism. So I think it's critically important. Uh, I would like to see, well, first of all, I also support uh, Chairwoman uh, Cantwell's bill and the, the payroll tax credit. Uh, I think that's great. That's obviously not within the jurisdiction of the FCC. But I'd like to see the FCC have more opportunities for diverse viewpoints. You know, they, there's a broadcast incubator program that was started, I believe, in 2018 or 2019. And its, its intent is to help more minorities get access to radio. And I think it would be great to expand that. Number one, I guess I'd like to see how it's working, uh, if I'm confirmed. But I don't see any reason why not to expand it to television. I think we need more opportunities for voices that are not normally heard uh, to actually be heard on broadcasting, because that still is the place where people get, again, local news and information. Uh, I, I'm a very uh, faithful listener to radio, since I spend a good deal of my life in the car, bouncing around the state of Connecticut. <laughs> uh, we don't travel by plane, as some of my colleagues do, but uh, all by car. And I would join you in seeking to strengthen those local voices. I think they're very important. Let me ask you, um, and I'm going to have a, some questions for the record on robocalls. You know about the proposed rule that uh, Chairman Rosenworcel circulated last month, and I hope that you will be a supporter of efforts on robocalls. But Senator Blackburn and I, with the support of the chairwoman, Senator Cantwell, have been having a number of hearings in uh, recent weeks about the revelations of harms by big tech, uh, a number of the platforms to children and teens, also on uh, the issue of privacy. We will be hearing from Instagram CEO next week. Uh, I would also note that in October, the FTC issued a very disturbing report regarding negative consumer impacts of the repeal of the FCC's broadband privacy rules. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Uh, there are deep problems. I don't need to tell anyone on this panel, either on your side or ours, with both big tech and big cables violations of consumer privacy, and we need rules for both. A number of us have been working on various bills. Uh, so I'd like to give you and uh, Mr. Davidson an opportunity to comment on the importance of this privacy crisis and uh, what Congress ought to be doing, what you can do uh, through the FCC and the NTIA. Yes. Um, thank you, Senator. Privacy is sacred, privacy of personal information. And when it your personal information is abused. It can have economic impacts. It can have social impacts. It can even have physical impacts. So I have been a huge supporter of Congress passing a comprehensive consumer privacy bill. 
Uh, and if I'm confirmed, I would love to work with you and anybody else on this dais on doing that. But the implications uh, of not protecting privacy, whether it be on big tech platforms or over ISPs, are enormous. Uh, and the harms have already been shown. I think one of the things that were in the FTC, was in the FTC's report was um, uh, it was shown that bounty hunters were getting some of the, some of the information. Right? And sometimes bounty hunters find people that should be found, but a lot of times they find people that shouldn't be found. So it could actually result in physical harm. So I would love to see Congress move forward. Uh, and you know, if the FCC has the opportunity, uh, which would take some time, I think that would be interesting as well. Senator Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri. Michelle, we're talking about local news, local radio. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Lowcast a little bit. You were on that board. Lowcast built its business model on streaming local television to the internet, generally without obtaining the consent of the of the uh, broadcast TV station or the copyright holders. There was a lawsuit. You went on that board actually after the lawsuit started, and uh, the, at this point, I think in August there was a determination that Lowcast Lowcast agreed to a settlement. So no appeal here, $32 million settlement. Do you want to talk about that, your decision to go on the board, and if this impacts your dealings with the very same local broadcasters that sued the company that you were on the board of? And I only have five minutes, so I I can talk about this a lot, but be as brief as you can and clearing this up for me. Sure, Senator Blunt. So Lowcast was a nonprofit service uh, that provided lo- local broadcast signals through, si- through streaming to folks who couldn't get them. And it relied on a copyright exemption. Okay, this was a case of first impression. Uh, it relied on an exemption for nonprofits. I thought it was a good thing, both for local broadcasters, and local broadcasters didn't sue, the network sued. I also thought it was good for viewers. I mean, these were viewers, for example, in orphan counties who maybe couldn't get certain programming. Uh, there were a lot of low-income uh, folks that also used the service. So I thought this was, for, from a public interest, kind of pro-consumer perspective, I thought this was good. But I did, the judge didn't agree. Well, no, what the judge said, and let me be, let me be specific about this, what the judge said was Locas was not entitled to the exemption. So it's literally within days of that decision coming down, we shut Lowcast down. And it's in the process of selling its assets, and it'll probably, will no longer exist by the end of the day. And you don't think this will have any impact on your dealing with local broadcasters in any way? I do not believe it will. Uh, Like I said, I revere local broadcasting. I think it's very important. I would like, if I'm confirmed, I would really like to sit down with them uh, explain what I did and get from them ideas about how I can help local broadcasting be more competitive, more resilient, and more diverse. And the networks that you say are the ones that sued Lowcast, you no problem with them either? I don't have any problem with them. I mean, just, you know, I have no hard feelings, uh, and it, it wouldn't bias me in any way. I take very seriously allegations of bias. And I've been working very closely with the Office of Government Ethics to make sure that, you know, I have no conflicts and I have no, uh, you know, predetermined biases. No, but just because they sued uh, Locast, no, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't bias my decisions. And as a policymaker, if I'm confirmed, 
I have to set my biases, even if I had a bias, I have to set those aside, look at the totality of the record, look at the law, confer with my colleagues, confer with staff, confer with all of you, and make a decision. So I've got a list of comments here about Fox News. Are you biased against them? (laughs) So you're referring to my tweets that are now pretty famous. Uh, I understand they're concerning to some, uh, and anyone who knows me knows I'm pretty direct. But they were made in my role as a public interest advocate. They were made in the context, and I think context is very important, uh, context of, of hearings, hearings and, and media reports. You know, maybe the tone was a little sharper. Uh, maybe I should have dulled it a little bit. But again, it was, it was part of my job, essentially, uh, as a public interest advocate. And do you think they're the only news agency that... Um is state-sponsored propaganda? Let me explain. That's your quote, by the way. Yeah, I I know it's my quote, yeah. Um, I I just wanted to complete my thought. My opinions as a public interest advocate will have no bearing on how I behave as a policymaker if I'm confirmed. I've been in government before, and the values that are important to being a policymaker, responsiveness, transparency, integrity, that's what you'll get from me if I'm confirmed. So yes, I said some things maybe too sharp, uh, but they will have absolutely no uh, determination in how I would rule on a proceeding with any of those companies. Well, I wish I had more time, Chair, but I don't. Senator Brian Schatz, Democrat from Hawaii. Earlier this year, I, with uh, other members of this committee, led a letter to the CEOs of AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile asking for commitment to protect consumers before the carriers shut down 3G networks. Uh, do you share our concerns about a 3G shutdown? And I know you're excellent at summarizing, so could you please summarize the problem for consumers and what you could do uh, about it as a commissioner? Sure, Senator Schatz. Um, so basically, uh, the carriers want to stop their 2G and 3G, uh, and in some cases 4G transmissions, their, 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 their mobile transmissions, because they want to move to 5G, which is important. We want that. It's going to be a transformative technology. Uh, we want that to happen. However, there are still, uh, I believe it's 13 to 17% of Americans still rely on 2G or 3G. So shutting it down too soon without some sort of mitigation will leave a lot of people without the ability to call an ambulance, to call their family, uh, or, you know, or to do anything just about. So this seems to me to be a problem that could be resolved through some negotiation. There is a petition uh, pending before the FCC right now uh, before, uh, that was submitted by the alarm industry, because that's another thing. Alarms will stop working. So there are serious public safety implications about shutting down 2G and 3G too quickly. Yeah, I would just observe that this is so potentially catastrophic and so fixable yes. that, I, that my worry is that everybody assumes it's going to get fixed because it would be preposterous to leave millions of Americans without the basic connectivity um, that their lives depend on, their, their lives depend on, and yet... Here we are without a solution, so I'm hoping we can work together uh, upon confirmation. Absolutely. Look, this is where I think my collaborative skills and my negotiation skills, if I'm confirmed, could really come into play, because this seems to me to be an issue that can be resolved with a little bit of play. Senator Deb Fisher, Republican from Nebraska. Ms. Sohn, I noticed you tweeted, 
that FCC subsidies can be helpful in, quote, forcing companies to compete. You've also said that, quote, whenever you hear anybody complain about overbuilding of broadband networks, translate that to competition, end quote. Would you stand by those statements, yes or no? I would stand by those statements, although I do support what's in the IAJA, the notion that the money should go first to building where there is nothing, un unserved areas, and then and only then should underserved areas be served. So I was a big supporter of the IAJA. I worked on it uh, with uh, several offices here. Uh, and so I, I did tweet those things pr prior, but I like the framework that's in the IIJA right now. Thank you for clarifying that. I appreciate that. Uh, after Congress passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Commerce Secretary Raimondo talked about transparency and oversight that were needed for state broadband proposals, and she said, we need to make sure that the money isn't used in overbuilding. So I'm glad that you agree with her. Um, Ms. Sohn, you often tie the competition conversation to municipal broadband. And I previously expressed concerns to former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler about the Commission's actions on municipal broadband because it undermines state laws. You were his counsel at that time. Did you advise him on that order? Uh, I probably did. I don't really have a specific recollection, um, but it's, I think it's important to note that right now the FCC can do nothing about municipal broadband. As you know, uh, we did try to preempt the state's uh, state laws of North Carolina and, uh, and Tennessee uh, that prohibited either new builds of municipal broadband or uh, extensions of, of uh, already built networks. And the Sixth Circuit said that we did not have the authority. So uh, if I'm confirmed, there's not a whole a lot I could do about municipal broadband. Given the court's reversal of that preemption order, do you regret pursuing that? No, Senator Fisher. I, I have supported municipal broadband for a very long time. I, it's actually, I mean, things are kind of changing now. It's not so much cities and towns providing their own service what you're now seeing is, is middle mile being built and commercial entities, they're called open access networks. They have them in Utah, they have them in North Carolina, they have them in a lot of places um, where, you, where basically the municipality, the city, the town builds the middle mile and then they invite commercial broadband providers to come and provide service and that really results in enormous competition. So do you believe that the FCC should be able to dictate to states um, what their broadband policy should be? Should the FCC preempt state law? So the FCC does not have the authority to preempt state law. And I actually think, look, I, the last three or four years, I've been working a lot with the states to try to get them uh, sort of ready for what uh, Mr. Davidson is about to give them in terms of money. I think the FCC needs to have a better relationship with the states. And if I'm confirmed, one of the things I would ask the chairwoman if I could be a liaison to the states because I've really formed very good relationships with them. And I, and I actually agree with you. I think in the past we haven't, made, we haven't outreached to the states and made them partners. We've been more adversarial. So There's, there's a committee within the FCC, am I correct in this, that uh, it's a 
it's a committee that brings the states together, and it's my understanding uh, from some members of our um, public service commission in the state of Nebraska that this committee, even though it's there, it doesn't meet, it doesn't do anything. Uh, would you be interested in looking into that and possibly, um, from your comments, you know, and working with, with states here to be able to um, have that communication in a more uh, formalized manner through this committee? I assume you're talking about the Joint State Board on Universal Service? Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was Chairman Wheeler's liaison to the Inter Intergovernmental Advisory Committee, uh, and I worked with them very well, made a lot of friends, including some friends who just, uh, Republican friends who just signed a letter on my behalf. Uh, so I would be delighted to do that. If Chairwoman Rosenworcel were to, if I was confirmed and she wanted to appoint me to the, the, the joint board, I'd be, I'd be honored. Nebraska was one of the few states after the 96 law that did form their own state uh, universal service fund and uh, was very uh, proactive on that and it works well. But um, so that's why I do have concerns about um, some of your comments on preempting state laws to be, to be forthright with you. Fair enough. Thank you. Happy to clarify them. Thank you. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota. So, I'd, I'd start by just uh, putting on the record, Madam Chair, if I could, uh, submit a letter from the Consumer Technology Association in support of Ms. Sohn. Yes, without objection. Okay, very good. Um, so, Ms. Sohn, you were just talking about your work with uh, states, um, and you've also worked on a variety of issues. Of course, some of this have come up, broadband, competition, innovation. Uh, can you talk about um, how you've worked uh, with colleagues on the opposite side of the aisle on these types of issues? Yes, Senator. Um, <clears throat> so let me give an example uh, from net neutrality because uh, that is an issue that obviously keeps coming up. Uh, and uh, I think it's really important. Obviously, I'm a supporter. But in... 20, I believe it was in 2012, uh, no, excuse me, it was 2010, we were waiting for the FCC to act on net neutrality. And it was taking a very, very long time. So I was asked, uh, along with some other public interest groups, to consider a legislative compromise. Uh, and this was led by uh, uh, Congressman Waxman, uh, and there were some Republican offices involved as well. Uh, the ISPs were supportive, uh, and the bill was not perfect, but public knowledge, the organization that I ran at the time, uh, decided to support it. And the night before the news was going to get out that we were supporting this, I called my public interest colleagues and told them, we're going to do this. We know you're not going to be happy about it, uh, but this is what we're going to do. And a lot of them were not happy about it. I think some of them are still unhappy about it to this day. Uh, but I think it was a demonstration of pragmatism, willingness to work with folks that you don't necessarily agree with, and the desire to get something done. Like nothing was happening. The, the, the FCC was frozen for whatever reason. And we got something done, and it actually caused the FCC to finally move. So I'm about making progress. I'm not interested in standing on ceremony, you know, standing on my laurels. I want to get stuff done, and we have a great opportunity here. Exactly. Um, so, um, as you look at what we can get done, just two things I'll follow up on here. Um, one is, and I know you've talked a lot about broadband, 
Um, and we have a lot of members here with significant rural areas on both sides of the aisle. Could you talk about how you would work with rural providers um, in areas where they might not have any broadband right now or more likely very, very low speed uh, broadband? So the IAJA specifically says that the FCC has to provide technical assistance. It requires NTIA to work with the FCC. And since NTIA is only 150 people, I think we could really help them uh, provide technical assistance. And the NTIA, in turn, has to provide technical assistance to the states, okay, and the carriers that get money from the states. So I see it as sort of like a virtuous relationship, uh, and I hope that we will get the opportunity, I know we'll get the opportunity to make sure that these unserved areas are served and that rural providers who need help, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated process, this like multi-grant process, that we can provide them the assistance they need. Okay. One last question. Uh, you and I talked about how I uh, chair of the 911 uh, caucus, and we have still work to be done on upgrading our 911 systems. Um, could you very, very briefly talk about how you think we could modernize these systems? And, and I know I'll ask you in writing, Mr. Davidson. I think what's most important, Senator Klobuchar, is that we don't have a digital divide in NG911. And we have to have the resources to make sure that people in rural areas or people in low-income areas also have NG911, not just people in rich areas. So I, I worry about that, about that NG911 divide as well. Okay, very good. Uh, thank you very much. I'll ask uh, you, Mr. Ahmad, you, Mr. Coco, uh, questions on the record. I really appreciate your willingness to serve. Senator Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas. Uh, Ms. Sohn, uh, you have impressed me this morning. I appreciate your intelligence and experience. Uh, I remember the days, uh, I'm always uh, griping that there are not Kansans in charge of the FCC, <laughs> but I also remember the days of um, what I considered uh, a lot of difficulties at the FCC in which members did not seem, in my view, to communicate with each other, and there was just a challenge there in getting along. I, I, I assume you would, you would remember what I'm talking about and would indicate to me that you would work hard to avoid that circumstance. Senator Moran, I absolutely would. And I, I, I must also say that when I was at the FCC, I always reached out to my Republican colleagues. I mean, I, you know, I didn't just have, you know, lunch with the commissioners, although I was in Ajit Pai's uh, Fantasy Football League twice. So um, it's really important to me. To me, these things are not personal uh, policy differences. So, yes, I will do that. I appreciate uh, your answer uh, to Senator Blunt's question. I, too, was concerned about I, I'm a supporter, an advocate for local uh, journalism, local broadcast journalism in particular that the FCC would have uh, jurisdiction over. And I wanted to make certain that uh, what you said was the truth uh, in regard to uh, no, no hard feelings, no bias, no consequences to that lawsuit. And you confirmed that, and I appreciate the, that you did. Um, we've allocated, Congress has allocated lots of, lots of money uh, to new broadband deployment programs many different agencies, uh, and there is some thought that the Universal Service Fund, uh, what's its role now? And we've had conversations, um, I, I visited with Chairwoman <coughs> Rosenworcel yesterday, uh, and the, the, the question that I raised with her is one I would raise with you, what role does USF play? I mean, we've talked about trying to expand uh, where its revenues come from or to reform USF, the USF fund. But with all the money that Congress is granting to deploy broadband, what now with the USF? 
That's a great question. And what's great about that question is that the IAJA answers it because it requires the FCC, I think within 30 days of the president signing the bill, to start a proceeding to look at how all the money, the $65 billion in the IAJA, how that will impact universal service fund. And I think that's really, really important. And then they have to submit a report within nine months that lays out options for, uh, for whatever, needs, whatever might be left. I mean, it's entirely possible, again, I don't want to prejudge, but it's entirely possible that after all this money is spent, you don't need as big a high-cost fund, right? Or Lifeline is different. Again, I don't want to prejudge it, but I think that that process, that provision is so important because you don't just throw $65 billion at broadband and then just say, well, here's universal service over here. So I look forward, if I'm confirmed, to, to participating in that proceeding because I think that's going to be super important. Your answer reminds me of the importance I would uh, suggest to you and assume that you know, and same with Mr. Davidson, in the coordination. Uh, we've asked for a commitment from the FCC when your fellow commissioners uh, were here that we're going to coordinate uh, and it would include rural development or USDA and others to make certain that we do this in a in a smart way. Senator Ed Markey, Democrat from Massachusetts. Ms. Sohn, in 2015, the FCC approved the open internet order, which put in place net neutrality protections and properly treated broadband as a telecommunications service under Title II of the Communications Act. The Trump era FCC later eviscerated net neutrality and eliminated the commission's rightful authority to protect broadband users, promote public safety, and close the digital divide. Yet the ongoing pandemic has left no doubt that today broadband is an essential utility. Now more than ever, Americans need net neutrality. Now more than ever, Americans need a commission with authority to oversee broadband. Ms. Sohn, do you believe that the FCC has the authority it needs to reinstate net neutrality and to restore classification of broadband as a Title II service, as Chairwoman Rosenworcel recently stated in front of this committee. Yes, Senator Markey, I agree with Chairwoman Rosenworcel that the FCC has authority. Thank you. Uh, and uh, it's going to be very difficult for us, obviously, to pass legislation, which I've been trying to move uh, since my days in the House uh, and over here in the Senate. So. I do think it is very important for us to have three uh, commissioners that do support uh, the notion that the FCC has that uh, authority to act. Um, the coronavirus pandemic has also highlighted the homework gap uh, that, uh, that exists across our country. We know that 12 to 17 million children in America were, were without um, the internet. Uh, throughout the course of this uh, pandemic. Um, I was successful in creating the Emergency Connectivity Fund, which is now providing $7 billion uh, in E-rate home connectivity funding. Uh, to date, the FCC has allocated $6 billion in, uh, has received more than $6 billion in funding and has awarded $3 billion in grants thus far. The program to put it simply, has led to 10 million students receiving devices uh, and having uh, the internet at home, uh, which they need. Uh, unfortunately, the emergency connectivity fund will soon run dry without additional funds. 
Uh, Ms. Sohn, do you agree that we should provide additional funding to the Emergency Connectivity Fund in the Build Back Better Act? Yes, Senator Markey, absolutely. And congratulations, by the way, on the first Emergency Connectivity Fund. Yeah, it, it's, this is a crisis that we're in, and the new variant is only going to further exacerbate this problem, and we just have to be realistic uh, about what's happening to second, third, fourth graders all across the country who do not have access. Uh, and... Um, do you think we need a permanent solution to this problem, given what we've learned during this pandemic? Yes, Senator Markey. Uh, one thing that I would like to see the FCC do and would support if I'm confirmed would be a reinterpretation uh, of the E-rate law to permit funding to go to homes, right? So my daughter's in back of me for a year and a half. Her classroom, which is what the law talks about being funded, right, connectivity to the classroom, was her bedroom. Uh, sometimes it was a dining room table. It was usually the bedroom. So the FCC, in my opinion, has the authority to reinterpret the law and I believe would be upheld by the courts to say that the classroom is pretty much almost anywhere, but it certainly is in the home. Yep, thank you. And, and I agree with you 100%. We just have to have a policy in our country that realizes that this is essential for children. My father drove a truck with a hood milk company, but I could compete against the school superintendent's daughter or son in my hometown because I could take my books home. If you can't take your books home, you're not going to be competing, yep. and that's what the Internet represents here today. So we thank you, Ms. Sohn, for your historic um, contributions to telecommunications policy thus far. Uh, you are an expert, uh, and we need experts in this field. So thank you for your service. Senator Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee. Ms. Sohn, let me come to you. Let me ask you for a yes or no on some questions. Has the Pi administration's decision to repeal the Wheeler Title II rules in any way stopped the FCC from executing its broadband deployment efforts? Yes or no? It has not, but it rests on a very thin okay, read. Okay, a, a yes or no. Know, I'm sorry. It yes is or no. no? No, the answer is no. Okay. All right, no, that's Correct. It has not impeded. That is correct. You've said you support a Title II regime plus forbearance from various FCC regulations, what the FCC did in 2015. Senator Markey just referenced that. So is that forbearance worth anything? Can't future FCCs just unforbear and impose more rules on the Internet? Senator, indeed yes they... No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. Yes, they could. That's right. All right. Do you support broadband rate regulation? No. Okay. That was an easy one. Well, good, because in times past you have supported rate regulation, if my memory is correct. Would more regulation of the Internet help encourage investment in broadband networks? No, I don't believe... Well... When you say internet regulation, are you talking about the broadband providers? I am talking about the, the providers, regulation of the internet, government control of the internet. Are you going to get more private investment to continue expanding these networks, or are you going to get less? I believe it has no impact. I would say you're wrong about that, because okay. look at what has happened by networks being able to get out there and expand broadband. There are a lot of counties in Tennessee, our 95 counties, 
where they have partnered up with state grants, they've partnered up with federal grants, they've partnered up with ILEX and CLEX and electric power co-ops. And we have very rural counties that are close to having fiber across the entire county. So it has a, an impact. A private sector approach works. Okay, the infrastructure bill that was recently signed into law funnels money to underserved areas, which means overbuilding existing networks and ignoring rural areas for cities. Do you believe this will close the digital divide? I support the framework that unserved must be served first, okay? And then and only then after the states prove to the NTIA that unserved is served first, then you could spend money on underserved. Yes, because one of the downfalls of the Obama era was the overbuilding of networks, of existing networks in cities, and the rural areas were left behind. They did not get that money, and that's why we have as much disparity as we have existing right now. And we need to be encouraging that investment into these networks. Okay, when you worked for Tom Wheeler, you led the FCC's efforts to put broadband privacy rules into place, rules that Congress later struck down as an overreach of FCC authority. And you recently said that there is no real oversight of broadband carriers going on. So do you believe the FTC has in some way fallen down on its job as a consumer privacy agency? I don't believe so, but I, I have to admit I haven't followed what the FTC has been doing very much lately. Okay, well, they are the privacy regulator, and as we've debated for many years, very vigorously, <laughs> uh, this is their jurisdiction. This is not the FCC's jurisdiction, and we need one regulator, one set of rules for the entire Internet ecosystem. Okay, if the FCC were to reclassify broadband as a Title II service again, would you support the FCC once again attempting to enact broadband privacy rules? I would prefer if Congress passed a, co a comprehensive consumer privacy bill. And I know, Senator Blackburn, you have been a leader in that regard. Uh, if the chairwoman undertook such a proceeding, I obviously would participate in it, and obviously she'd have to reclassify first. Uh, but I would prefer to see Congress settle the matter with a comprehensive consumer privacy bill. And I've been very, very clear on that. Okay, thank you. You were on the board of directors for Locast, a streaming service that shut down right about the time you were nominated for pirating content. Locast was shut down for pirating content. Despite your talk about valuing content, it seems like you're not being consistent in your value of protecting intellectual property of creators. And as you know, retransmission is an issue that has been debated. And I know we're going to continue this conversation about protecting content that is there. But my time has expired. Madam Chairman, thank you. Senator Gary Peters, Democrat from Michigan. Uh, Ms. Cohn, uh, Michigan uh, has, a, has an urban-rural broadband problem that, that certainly can't be addressed by one-size-fits-all, and that's not unique to Michigan by any means. That's basically the situation all across the country. 
that's why I co-sponsored the Broadband Infrastructure Financing Innovation Act, which, which supports public-private partnerships that work to connect families uh, and communities. Probably one of, the, one of the outstanding examples in my state uh, is Northern Michigan University Educational Access Network that provides uh, broadband connections to all of the, the homes uh, nearby. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about local partnerships, uh, how important they are in your mind. Uh, should we continue to focus on this? And if so, uh, what do you recommend uh, that we do to make sure these partnerships continue to provide these very vital services? Thank you, Senator Peters. Uh, look, I think localities are critical inputs to getting the digital divide closed. And again, the broadband infrastructure bill, uh, I'll use Senator Markey's term, uh, requires states to bring localities into the conversation. They can't just spend the money without uh, talking to local officials, and I think that needs to continue. I think that's very, very important. Uh, I've dealt with an awful lot of mayors. Uh, they care deeply about this issue, and I think we need to continue to support their efforts to get broadband to their communities. Uh, as, as chairman of Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, uh, protecting critical infrastructure is, uh, is one of my primary jobs. Uh, and uh, critical infrastructure is currently, uh, certainly telecommunication networks, uh, protecting them from cyber attacks. Uh, we have compromised components that are out there. And then natural disasters uh, uh, that, that hit and, and wipe out these services. This year, the Communication Security, Reliability, and Interoperability Council has made, an, I think, important steps to coordinate between the FCC and the Department of Homeland Security but by allowing the Department of Homeland Security to, to co-chair for the, for the first time. So certainly I think that uh, is long overdue and, uh, and appreciate that. But, but Ms. Owen, how, how can DHS and FCC better coordinate to improve the security of these networks, uh, create increased resiliency, and uh, in particular disaster recovery? Senator, that's a great question. I can't say I've thought about it a whole lot, although I'm delighted to hear about uh, the, the joint work of, of DHS and CISRIC. Actually, my wife works at DHS, so that's a good thing. Um, I do think maybe perhaps what could happen is what we have with the FCC and the, the FCC chair and the administrator of NTIA are required to meet twice a year. So maybe we could have something similar with... Um, uh, the Secretary of DHS and Chairwoman Rosenworcel will be required to meet at least twice a year to try to flesh out how we can work together. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to hear this because I know that Chairman, former Chairman Wheeler really wanted to have the FCC more involved in cybersecurity, particularly now when you're seeing all these hacks, it's so critically important. Uh, but DHS obviously has the primary role. So I'd like to see some sort of movement to work together on a more regular basis. Well, I appreciate that. And if confirmed, I would certainly like to work with you and have uh, this conversation as to how we bring uh, these agencies working together. Uh, we just we're passing uh, some significant cyber protection legislation, which will hopefully be an NDAA that's uh, before us. But the key thing uh, that we're focused on is the fact that we have these silos in federal government. Folks are just not talking to each other. This is a system-wide problem. Typical, a lot of big organizations, uh, but when it comes to cyber, we've got to be coordinated. And when it comes to resiliency uh, in natural disasters, we've got to be coordinated. So I would love to work with you on that. Absolutely. Uh, there's also widespread uh, recognition that uh, for in 1978 to 1995, the tax certificate policy was by far one of the most effective vehicles for advancing minority 
broadcast ownership. And in its 17 years of operation, the policy uh, quintupled, uh, quintupled uh, minority broadcast ownership. Another desirable tax initiative tailored for small businesses would provide a company donating a station to a training institution uh, that they would receive a tax credit equal to that station's value. My question for you is under your leadership, would, would the commission request Congress to restore and improve the tax certificate policy and create a tax credit for donating a station to a training institution? Is that something you'd be supportive of? It's something I'm certainly supportive of. I was uh, a huge supporter of the old minority tax certificate. I uh, was very disappointed when it got repealed. I'd obviously have to talk to the chairwoman about, you know, what the FCC could do uh, to support that. But I personally am extremely supportive. Senator Dan Sullivan, Republican from Alaska. Ms. Son, I, I wanted to uh, talk uh, on a number of issues with you. Um, but first, there's been some concern in this committee where the administration has put forward a nominee for something, and after the hearing and everything, so, oh, by the way, that person's going to be chair. The FTC is obviously the big example of that. We didn't know that. At least I didn't know that. Have you had any discussions with the Biden administration about being elevated to chairman over Commissioner Rosenworcel at all? No. Okay, good. Um, look, I'm going to be, uh, I've noticed, again, it seems like one of the ways you get nominated for a position in this administration is if you have some really good, nasty tweets against Republicans, it's the way you get nominated. I can't, I mean, geez, the numbers are going through the roof. But you um, you kind of take the, the case on this um, with regard to tweets that I, I find not only very troubling, I can go through the whole list, but maybe I'll just submit them for the record. You know, Republicans are racist, the usual BS. Um, I notice you've purged your account. Did you do that for a reason? I'm sorry, sir. I did not. I didn't. I did not. My account's still up there. Okay. Trust me. It, people are picking at it, so it's definitely still up there. I didn't. Well, not. look. I. This is actually a really serious issue yeah. with regard to your nomination, and here's the reason: we're not just nominating you, you know, for any normal assistant secretary. The FCC has enormous power, and it has enormous power in America, particularly as it relates to free speech particularly as it relates to liberty in our country. And let me just give you a couple. Fox News has had the most negative impact on our democracy. It is state-sponsored propaganda. That's one of your tweets, one of your many tweets. So how is Fox News state-sponsored propaganda? And is MSNBC state-sponsored propaganda too? Remember, this goes directly to the power you're going to have. This is not some kind of random tweet. Millions of Americans watch that news station. I happen to. I don't think it's state-sponsored propaganda. For God's sake, we needed a conservative viewpoint in America media, which obviously you don't like. So talk to me about state-sponsored propaganda. Yeah, Senator, before I explain the tweet, I'd like to explain the context. And also, I would also like to remind folks that um, among my supporters are the two most... I, you, know, I, 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 you know how this committee works. I'm going to be respectful, but I need to interrupt. Okay, please. Because I don't have a lot of time. Just address the tweet. I don't need the context. I don't need to hear about your supporters. You are going to be in charge of regulating news agencies like Fox News, and you're calling them state-sponsored propaganda. How can you do that as an honest broker... When you've already put out, you are also called that Sinclair broadcasts 
whether you, you, you had the F, you called for the FCC to investigate whether they're qualifi qualified to be a broadcast licensee at all. You are clearly indicating your bias against more conservative news sources. And yet, you are now up for confirmation of one of the most powerful positions in America on free speech. I think that disqualifies you completely. But talk to me about Fox News as state-sponsored terrorism, how they've had the, quote, most negative impact on our democracy, and then why isn't MSNBC state-sponsored terrorism? Um, I didn't say terrorism. I didn't mean terrorism. I meant propaganda. Yeah, Senator, there, I was tweeting uh, during a hearing on Section 230 and where the point was being made that big tech companies were, you know, the most harmful to our democracy. How is, just um, again, how is Fox News state-sponsored propaganda and how, it is, how has it had, quote, the most negative impact on our democracy? These are your words. Yes, I'm those, not exactly. That was as a, as a public interest advocate, as part of my job, those were my words, those were my opinions, but they will have no bearing on how I would act if I'm confirmed as an FCC commissioner. What about questioning the broadcast license? That would be your job of Sinclair Broadcasting. I mean, are you going to recuse yourself on anything relating to Fox News or Sinclair Broadcasting? So let me talk about Sinclair Broadcasting. Actually, I think it's a good question. I just asked you, yeah. are you going to recuse yourself if I, confirmed? Senator, I am talking with the office. I've signed a, uh, an ethics agreement with the Office of Government Ethics. If there is any question about my bias, uh, I will consult with them and see if I need to recuse. Well, I think these tweets are clearly evidence of bias. Senator, I, I respectfully disagree. Really? Uh, yeah, because, because, again, these were made... First of all, let me just step back on Sinclair, because I think it's really important to understand what I actually said. What I said was, and again, I was agreeing with Chairman Pai, who set the uh, transaction for a hearing, because Sinclair, they alleged, the FCC, the Pi FCC alleged that Sinclair was not honest about its ownership of certain stations. So the hearing designation order was looking at Sinclair's dishonesty, not, it had nothing to do whether it was conservative or liberal. Senator Todd Young, Republican from Indiana. Uh, Ms. Sohn, um, the Universal Service Fund, um, the contribution factor has climbed due to the, the rather uh, serious shrinking of the contribution base. Uh, the USF contribution base has uh, declined from nearly $80 billion in 2001 to nearly $30 billion in, in 2021. Um, and I think USF really remains the key for expanding uh, communication service at acceptable speeds to all Americans. Uh, what does the future of the USF program look like in your view? Um, how would you approach this? Yes, yeah, thanks, Senator Hickenlooper. Um, so the good news is, and uh, at the risk of repeating myself, is that the broadband, uh, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill addresses this by requiring the FCC to do a study uh, 30 days after the signing of the bill uh, on the impact of the $65 billion on universal service, and then come back within nine months with recommendations 
for how to proceed. I agree with you 100% that the universal service contribution uh, mechanism is broken, that universal service is important, uh, but I also think it's, it's critically important to make sure we know what the impact of all this money is on the fund before we decide what the solution should be. Well, but, but again, just to take the puck metaphor even further. Uh, I'm a big hockey fan, so that's good. <laughs> I think, you again, even as you're doing that and, and, and worrying on that, about that $65 billion, you've also got to look longer term and say, all right, what's the long-term integrity of, of USF going to do? How, how are we going to get there? Yeah, look, I think that um, uh, reforming the contribution mechanism is critical. Right. Uh, and whether it's Congress who does it or FCC who does it, I'm, I'm quite agnostic, but it, it needs to be taken care of, and I think all options should be on the table. Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah. Should net neutrality uh, requirements include or should the FCC uh, generally regulate the rates charged uh, by, uh, for broadband services? No, sir. Okay. And what about minimum or basic tier broadband plans, uh, like those included in the infrastructure bill, required by the in- infrastructure bill? Should the FCC require these, uh, these, these affordable basic tier plans? I know of no proposal to do so, and it's in the infrastructure bill, so I don't think it would come before the FCC. Yeah. Uh, to determine the basic tier plans required by the infrastructure bill, you would have to look at price in order to figure that out. And um, it's not possible to support a price threshold in a minimum tier broadband plan and then simultaneously uh, uh, say that you're not, you're, you're, you're not for broadband rate regulation. That is, in fact, what that is, isn't it? Well, I, is there a distinction that I'm missing between those? And if so, what, what is the distinction? Yeah, I, I'd have to think more about that. Um, this obviously is something that the FCC would not decide. Uh, this was, is more in Mr. Davidson's wheelhouse. But I'm not, it's not 100% clear to me that... Um, <clears throat> that that affordability requirement necessitates the NTIA saying the price must be X. It's not, that's, not, that's not clear to me from the, from the law that that is required. Now, there has been a lot of discussion uh, about the best way to build out our broadband access and uh, at the same time also instill competition within broadband, uh, within the industry and among providers. One suggestion has been uh, to have more government ownership and or government operation of broadband networks. Where, where do you land on, on that issue? Is, it, is broadband access in both rural and in urban areas, is it better achieved through private sector ownership and operation or through government ownership and operation, whether at the state, local, or federal level? Yes, Senator, thanks for that. My position has long been that communities should have a choice. I'm not going to say that one is better than the other. In some places, for example, in Utah, Utopia is a very, very successful uh, middle-mile open-access network. Now, the towns and cities do not provide last-mile service because they're actually prohibited from doing so, but it's extraordinarily successful. Uh, In other places, it hasn't worked at all. So I, I, I I wouldn't put my thumb on the scale that one is better than the other. I just think that communities should have a choice. There are many in Utah, including myself, who would beg to differ with your characterization on that front. But what about a, what about a federally owned 5G network? Oh, I'm, I'm opposed to that. That was, that was proposed by the last administration. I, 
that's not something I would support. Okay, so why draw a distinction between the federal government's ownership of broadband and state, local, or municipal ownership of broadband? That's a good question. I haven't actually really thought much about that. Um, I probably would have to get back to you on the QFRs on that. Um, um, let's talk about um, the digital divide for a minute. What is the di digital divide? What does that mean? To me, the digital divide means, <clears throat> I mean, it means a lot of things, but it means that there are households in the United States, both in rural, urban, and tribal areas, that either do not have broadband because there's no network available to them, they cannot afford broadband uh, just because they, you know, they don't have the means or the prices are too high, uh, or they don't have the skills to use it. Okay. So, yeah. 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 I, I get where you're going. I want to zero in uh, on something a, a little bit more more narrow. Now, the the bipartisan infrastructure package that just passed. Uh, seeks to deploy broadband with speeds of 100 up and 20 down in order to close the digital divide. Um, in doing that, taking that into account and, 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 and also just your own views on the matter, help me understand what technological capabilities we're wanting to make sure all Americans have. Is it e-commerce? Is it, e is it entertainment? Is it video gaming? Is it access to a virtual reality experience uh, uh, for entertainment purposes or otherwise? What, what is it? Well, I think it's all of the above. And certainly is telehealth. That's a, that's a, huge, um, a huge application. Uh, precision farming uh, is another application that I think is critically important. So I, you know, look okay, there. What, as, what if we end up in a, in a future circumstance? If all currently unserved and underserved areas are able to achieve 100 up to uh, 20 down, uh, or let's even say symmetrical speeds of 100, will the digital divide then be closed and closed for good? And, and is there therefore any uh, uh, ever a point at which the, the federal government will have funded enough technological capability that we have adequately shrunk or eliminated uh, that such that we could shrink or eliminate federal subsidies on that? Yeah, so... Again, mere deployment won't necessarily close the digital divides. And I think that's really important. And I, I do think, and I have urged, uh, that Congress adopt a permanent uh, broadband subsidy like the Affordable Connectivity Program, which is more money but is not permanent. You still will always have the adoption problem as well, where people don't have the digital literacy, sometimes not even the literacy literacy, uh, to be able to use the if internet. My time's expired. I, I just want to be clear, though. What if you had symmetrical speeds of 100? Does that do it? Does that close it? No. At what point are they closed then? Well, again, you will always have, um, you'll always have folks who can't afford it who are going to need a subsidy. If you're, if you're just talking about deployment, okay, and when are we done uh, with deployment, I would hope that after this money is spent, we could be largely. But as far done. as speed goes, taking setting aside the okay. issue of cost, as far as speed goes, that would do it. Well, the bill does prefer scalable networks, okay, to to meet the needs of tomorrow. What we what we really don't want, I would think, or I would not want, is to come back in five or ten years and say, "Oh my goodness, we spent all this money, and we still have slow networks, and we still have areas in the country that are not served." So I think the scale, the ability to scale whatever the speed is today, 
The ability to have technologies that can grow over time, I think, is very, very important. And that's one of the reasons the bill prefers those kind of technologies. Also, Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat, Nevada. I'd like to move on to diversity in local broadcasting because, Ms. Son, my office has has heard concerns about your past positions on a handful of issues, from local broadcasting to copyright protections. Although the FCC may not have significant jurisdiction over copyright laws, the Commission does have an important impact on broadcasting and media ownership. In Nevada and across the country, we deeply value our local broadcasters. They provide a tremendous service to our communities. We want to support these partners in public service, and that means ensuring they continue to become more diverse. So Ms. Son, in your opening statement, you note that you value a diversity of voices in various platforms. Ensuring the public is hearing from diverse perspectives, regardless of how they are delivered. I understand concerns have been raised about your opposition to policies such as joint service agreements and shared service agreements, which allow stations to share facilities and employees and jointly sell advertising, which I understand can be critically important for minority-owned stations. So, Ms. Son, could you explain your position on this type of ownership and how these agreements might either help or hurt minority ownership in media and as we think about uh, local broadcasting. Can you discuss your time at Locast and how you plan to balance some of your priorities from your time at a nonprofit with your new role? Sure. Thank you, Senator Rosen. Uh, Let me address first the JSA and sidecar uh, position because uh, as as many people know, I've been fighting for increased minority ownership of media for 30 years. I have the support of former acting chairwoman Mignon Clyburn and Byron Allen, who is the largest Uh, a minority broadcaster. Uh, My position was misstated. I did not oppose uh, joint service agreements or sidecar agreements. Tom Wheeler, who I worked for, uh, proposed making sure that those agreements counted towards the media ownership rules. However, there is an exception uh, to that attribution, and that is for uh, diverse voices. So, If uh, somebody wants to have a sidecar agreement with a a minority broadcaster, those those stations are not counted. So there's actually an exemption for diverse voices for minority voices. But that that was not my personal position. So that was unfortunately misstated. Senator Ben Lujan, Democrat, New Mexico. Ms. Son, you've been an advocate for open and affordable and competitive, competitive communication networks for decades For almost a year, the commission has been limited with just four out of five commissioners seated. Now, we can't wait any longer. We need a full-functioning commission, especially with this important investment. For students, broadband isn't a luxury. It's a basic necessity, helping our children succeed with broadband uh, connectivity, whether they're distance learning or at-home learning. Most of their homework is done online, and I very much support uh, Commissioner Rosenworcel's efforts to close the homework gap. Um, stories where students are not able to connect and live out uh, in areas uh, where, you know, uh, heat stroke is part of being able to get your homework done, except to sit out in the sun all day, are unacceptable. What steps would you take at the FCC to close the homework gap? Senator Lujan, thanks for that question. I think the most important thing that the FCC could do at this juncture uh, is to interpret the law uh, to allow E-rate funds to be used in the home. Uh, The law says that the funds go to connectivity to the classroom, but the classroom is in the home. It's not just in one building. 
So I think that's, that would be the number one thing that I would advocate for if I'm confirmed. I introduced a piece of legislation with Senator Lindsey Graham to expand E-rate support to Wi-Fi on school buses. Is that something you support? Yes. As a commissioner at the FCC, um, you've been asked this question a bit today. Um, how would you support increasing diversity and in media ownership, um, especially into uh, communities of color where we see a lack, given some of the legislative uh, initiatives and Supreme Court decisions recently that I think make it harder uh, for uh, uh, diversity and media ownership to take place? Yes, Senator, it is a naughty question. I actually went to the Supreme Court in support of minority preferences for broadcasters in the 90s, which unfortunately got reversed. Uh, I think expanding the, the broadcast incubator program beyond radio, I think that would be a really important way to, to, uh, to goose minority uh, ownership. The other thing that I might say is, you know, the, the FCC is in the middle of its quadrennial looking at its media ownership rules and perhaps, and just, you know, the, the circumstances surrounding its media ownership rules. I wonder if there might be new ways to um, encourage media, uh, minority media ownership through that quadrennial. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas. Uh, Ms. Sohn, you know, I had a good visit in my office. I appreciated your coming by. Uh, as I expressed in that meeting, I've got real concerns about your nomination. Uh, and my concerns are in the context of the growing calls of the left to have more and more censorship. The Federal Communications Commission has enormous power. It has power over broadcasters. And it is also, particularly under Democratic administrations, asserting power uh, over big tech. When you were at the commission previously, you were a vocal proponent of the commission asserting power over big tech. In the public space, uh, you have been unabashedly a person of the left. Now, that can be fine if that is combined with a commitment to free speech. Uh, in your opening statement, you said freedom of speech is the lifeblood of our American experience and has always been at the core of my work. And that commitment is important. It is actually something more and more rare on the left, and yet your record suggests a deep antipathy to those with different views. What, how would you comfort a conservative concerned about censorship when they see your nomination that you would not, if confirmed, use your power as a government regulator to censor more and to silence those with whom you disagree. Thank you, Senator Cruz, and I did enjoy our visit as well. Um, I would say look at my record. Look at the conservative cable channels that I worked for, worked with, excuse me, for years to get them carriage on cable systems when those systems would not carry them. Uh, you know, I have long worked with organizations and again, companies with whom I vigorously disagree on their point of view. These are you know, fervent Republicans, fervent supporters of the former president, and I work with them to get their views online. I believe that my, um, uh, I've been characterized very unfairly uh, as being anti-conservative speech. I think my record says otherwise. Uh, I have been critical of Fox News. I'm sure you have my tweets. 
but that was in the context of a hearing where big tech was being blamed for misinformation, as they deserve, okay? And I'm not quite sure about your statement about me wanting to assert authority over big tech when I was at the FCC, because it's actually been the exact opposite, but we can talk about that. But, but Fox News, I have been critical because I don't think, if you're going to look at misinformation, you have to look at the entire ecosystem, and frankly, not just at Fox News. I have also been critical of liberal uh, stations as well. I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of the big chirons on, uh, on cable news. Well, I will say yesterday I had a conversation with Chris Ruddy, who owns Newsmax, and I will say he confirmed what you said and that, that he, he described his relationship with you as having been an advocate for additional voices. That's an encouraging sign. I, w- I was comforted uh, by what Mr. Ruddy had to say. At the same time, you urged, look at your record. Um, and indeed, you said that, that, that I had the Fox News tweets, and you're right, I at least have some of them. Um, and, and I would note what your record says, um, November 6, 2020, so do you still want me to believe that social media is more dangerous to our democracy than Fox News? Um, another one about Fox News, I guess, old media can destroy democracy. Um, you have multiple tweets going after Fox News very directly. Now, look, you're entitled to have your own views. I don't agree with everything on Fox News either or really any news station. But it's one thing to have a view. It's another thing for the government to use its regulatory power to silence views it disagrees with. Um, some people home watching are regular watchers of Fox News. Um, how can they have any comfort that if you're confirmed, you won't use the power of government to silence them? Well, I'll make that commitment right here, but I would also say that I take any allegations of bias extremely seriously. I've been working very closely with the Office of Government Ethics on an ethics agreement, which I've signed, and if there's any question about my bias, I will work with them to determine whether I need to not participate in a proceeding. But I do not believe I'm biased All of those tweets, I believe, I can't read them all, were in the context of a comparison, usually a Section 230 hearing, uh, between is big, you know, it's not a comparison. I was making the comparison that if if you were looking at just big tech, and again, I'm highly critical of them, you also have to look at the other voices in the ecosystem. I'll point to another tweet, uh, which... You said, which is the whole point of the hearing, to work the referees prior to the election so that misinformation, violence-inducing, and hate speech remain unmoderated. It's already worked on Twitter and Facebook over the past few months. Now, what is troubling about this is you are advocating for more censorship. You are advocating, and in fact, you're saying the, quote, working the refs is is one of the talking points that, that Democrats use today to say that anyone defending free speech is working the refs. Uh, Well, I guess I I don't read it that way. Well, first of all, the the tech platforms are under a different regime. uh, The FCC does not have authority over big tech platforms. But under net neutrality, you're trying to assert more power. No, sir. In fact, I've actually been one of the biggest voices against the FCC asserting authority. When uh, the former president 
tried to make the FCC um, interpret Section 230, I was extremely vocal that the FCC did not have authority. So you opposed the former president's efforts to protect free speech. That, that no, I, that's I guess not... doesn't give... So, so let me ask you this. Do you, do you I, believe big tech should be censoring more or censoring less than they do right now? Uh, I don't have an opinion on that. I think they need to be more... Um, Oh, they, mean, they need to be more transparent about why they do what they do. I'm not pleased with their moderation either way because you have no idea why they're doing it. Senator Kirsten Cinema, Democrat, Arizona. Net neutrality is a critical protection for both Internet consumers and providers. But as you know, we've had decades of partisan disagreement about net neutrality where the FCC changes the rules every administration, which is then followed by years of litigation. Meanwhile, consumers and providers have no certainty about the rules of the Internet. I believe the only way to permanently fix net neutrality is for Congress to pass a bipartisan bill that provides lasting net neutrality protections while ensuring there's opportunity for innovation in the Internet. Do you support using Title II of the Telecommunications Act to pursue net neutrality, or should we allow Congress to act in this area? Thank you, Sen uh, Senator. Uh, I would much prefer if Congress settled the matter. I've been an advocate uh, for net neutrality for 20 years, and I'm as tired of the ping pong game as anybody. However, until Congress acts, I think it's critical that consumers be protected and competition be promoted. So, you know, if necessary, uh, we cannot leave an essential service such as broadband uh, without oversight. So if necessary, the FCC uh, will have to go to Title II, I believe, just like Chairwoman Rosenworcel believes, uh, if Congress doesn't act. But boy, would I really appreciate it if Congress did act. So if you prefer congressional action, which it sounds like we both do, how much time should the FCC give Congress to pass a bipartisan net neutrality law before they consider an alternative? Well, anything the FCC would do uh, to implement Title II would take quite a bit of time to begin with. You know, the FCC would have to start an entirely new proceeding. They'd have to take notice and comment. They probably would do months of meetings, if my experience is, is any indication. So, you know, that proceeding is going to take at least a year. I would hope that Congress, you know, I know Congress doesn't always move as quickly as all of us would like. Uh, so I would say, you know, a year until that proceeding is concluded. But again, I'm very concerned that that broadband, an essential service, has been without any oversight uh, for the past four years, and there have been issues with that, um, you know, regarding firefighters, regarding the ability of rural wireless providers to get access to pole attachments, to people being charged for modems that they own, so it's those kind of consumer protections and public safety protections that the FCC can't afford to leave unprotected. In 2015, the FCC chose to forbear the vast majority of Title II to broadband. In a paper last year, you recommended the incoming FCC forbear less. Do you still believe that's the best approach and why? Yeah. Uh, Senator Sinema, as I said before, I'm, I've been debating net neutrality for 20 years and my positions are always evolving because of changes in technology, how consumers use the internet and business practices. So frankly, even what I might have said a year ago probably doesn't even apply anymore. Uh, and as I said uh, before, and as Chairman Rosenworcel has said, she would have to start an entirely new proceeding. There'd be a new record. So regardless of what I might have said in an academic paper, you know, if I'm confirmed and there's a new proceeding, 
I'd have to look at the totality of the record, confer with staff, confer with my colleagues, and confer with you uh, and your colleagues on the dais. So, um, you know, what I said in an academic paper, frankly, is just academic. You've been listening to the Senate Commerce Committee hearing from December 1, 2021, with a nominee for the Federal Communications Commission, Gigi Sohn. Today. You've been listening to an FCC Extra from FCC Today, the podcast. Comments and questions can be called or texted to 202-963-0852 or email FCCToday at RECnet.com. This has been a production of REC Networks, always on at RECnet.com. I'm Michelle Bradley, SBE Certified Broadcast Technologist. Thank you for listening and stay safe. R-E-C.